Good morning. For those of you who are online, we have new seating. Have you noticed that? New seating arrangements? We've made more space between the rows. It's all part of our attempt to move as much to the near normal as we can uh, while remaining safe, uh, but we are going to be reintroducing some of our stations, some of the stations that we use during um, our response time, and so we're going to have the kneeling station back in that corner starting next week. We'd love to have our prayer team, if we can gather enough people, uh, praying with people during kind of praying side by side over in that corner, and we're looking forward to bringing some of that back. We're talking about possibly bringing back the light stations. We'll see uh, whether we can do that or not, uh, but those are some of the things that we're talking about, so it's kind of, kind of exciting uh, to experience that. We had two, uh, 200 people here yesterday, uh, all over the entire property. We had uh, a broom ball, or as native Minnesotans say, broom ball, broom ball. Uh, down there. We had... Uh, there was like this gigantic slingshot shooting uh, snowballs back here. All kinds of things going on are all over the place, and it was, it was a blast to see families having a, a great time together. All right, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and keep your Bibles open, because even after the reading, we'll come back to it, and then we're going to go to Matthew after that. Excuse me. <coughs> so we're in the last week of our series called Room of Marvels a series on foundational Bible doctrines. And I hate to see, this is one of those series I just hate, I've said this many times, but I hate to see this one come to an end. I think in my 24 years here, this is probably the one I've gotten, uh, probably at least no series has gotten, uh, it's gotten as much feedback as any other series. And positive feedback, I think a lot of people have really enjoyed it, a lot of families have enjoyed it. And uh, hopefully, um, Hopefully, it's had a big impact on our lives. So we're talking today about the last, if you're going to do Bible doctrines, usually what you come to is the last one, which has to do with the last things. Uh, in, in theological studies, it's called eschatology. Uh, sometimes it's called the apocalypse, uh, the second coming. We like to use the term new creation around here because new creation grabs that idea that it is a new Eden, but even bigger and better, and it's physical. It's not like our destiny isn't uh, a disembodied life. It is a, a embodied life. That is the destiny for believers in the new heaven and the new earth. And when it becomes something other than that, bad things happen to our theology and bad thing hap things happen to our lives. Uh, so we're going to be looking at that. Uh, some people might call it the end of the world as we know it would be maybe another way of describing this. But we're going to be looking uh, at that in just a few moments. We're going to start by praying uh, the prayer of illumination, which is based on Romans chapter 6, and then we'll hear the passage, and then we'll hear a little bit from the emblems book. So please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, your word reveals both your glory and your grace. The payment for our sin is death, but your gift to us is eternal life. By your Holy Spirit, give us understanding as we look to your word. Guide us to walk in obedience as we live in the freedom of your grace. Thank you for the new life that we have in you, both with you now and for eternity. Father, we bring uh, before you uh, the, our, our whole nation right now with the Chauvin trial uh, starting uh, in, within about a week or so. 
and we pray for a peace that reflects your shalom. We pray for a peace that reflects your justice. We pr pray that justice will be done, and we pray for protection for hearts deeply wounded by historic racism as well as uh, racism even now. And so, Father, we ask that you help us as Christians of all races and ethnicities to think deeply and humbly about racism so that we can pursue greater justice that reflects your priorities and do it in a way that reflects the Beatitudes of Jesus and the fruit of the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's hear the scripture being read now. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. All right, so if you've been with us throughout this series, we have played portions of a book called Emblems of the Infinite King, and it's a systematic theology for ages 10 through adults with incredible, incredible storyline as well as uh, illustrations. And so we're going to hear the beginning of the last chapter before the epilogue. We're going to listen to this portion of Emblems. Chapter 8, The Throne Key, The Doctrine of Last Things. Your lungs sting as you gasp for air. You look down and see clouds below and the ragged rocks of the mountain peak just under your feet. Your lungs sting as you gasp for air. You look up and the stars are so close. They are like streams of white ribbons holding the darkness back from the world far below the mountaintop. And then you hear his wise voice and with it, you can breathe again. At the end of all things, your future can be better than your beginning. The king wants to show you what waits ahead for the citizens of his kingdom, as well as what lies ahead for the serpent's slaves. For those who are the kings, there is a blessed hope. For his enemies, there is only a forever curse. Right now, you stand between what the death killer started and what the death killer will complete. The kingdom is small today, but soon it will cover everything the king has made. What you are about to see is what will happen at the end when the king wins. He conquers his enemies, and he makes his world better than when it began. But like those traveling through a storm to get to paradise, you must first face the consequences of a world torn by sin before you can see the perfect plans he has for his creation. All right, so this entire series, one of the things that we've tried to do is help people, help us get our, um, our feet firmly planted in God's truth. It's a different story than we hear every single day. 
And uh, the world has a story that in many ways intersects with our story because people are made in the image of God, because our longings reflect how God has made us, all of that. But we live fundamentally a different story from the rest of the world, and it's hard to hold on to the story. And hopefully, um, you have, uh, we've all been strengthened in the story of God uh, that he wants us to live in. So what do we need to know about the last things? Uh, and, or another way, what do we need to know about the new creation? So the first thing we need to know, we're going to look at three things. The first thing we need to know is we need to know about the death killer's return. And so the death killer is a way of referring to Jesus throughout this book. Think of the death killer uh, when you hear the, uh, the benediction today as you're sent uh, to go out and live. Think of that term, uh, death killer. So Jesus talked about his own return quite frequently in the Gospels. And when he talked about his return, it was completely unintelligible for his disciples. They did not understand what he was talking about. They did not understand what he would say about his death. They did not understand what he would say about his resurrection. Uh, they did not understand what he meant when he said, I'm going to leave and then I'm going to come back. They had no framework for understanding that uh, because he was the Messiah and not just any Messiah. He was the capital M Messiah, not just a king, which is what Messiah is, the anointed one. He was the king who would rule forever. They had no conception that he would leave and that he would return. So he talked about it often. People didn't get it. The apostle Paul speaks about it in the passage that we heard read in just a few moments that we're going to look at. And he teaches about the return of Christ to a bunch of people who are very confused about the return of Christ. So let's look at verse 16 and 17 in particular and what it says there about the return of Christ. So he says, the Apostle Paul says, For the Lord himself, meaning Jesus, will come down from heaven at that second coming, will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Now, a lot of Christians, pretty much like the people in Thessalonica, maybe not quite as badly as they were confused, get confused about what Jesus is talking about here because they don't really understand why it is Paul says what he says here and what it is that he says. But clarity comes with context. Or another way to put it is that the context makes clear the uh, content, clarifies the content. Now, here's what I mean uh, by this confusion. A lot, of people are, um, a lot of people miss what he's saying in verse 16 and 17 because they, and they misconstrue it uh, because they haven't looked at what the reason is for Paul writing this entire letter of 1 Thessalonians. They haven't looked at what is actually happening there. He starts speaking very directly to it in verse 13. And it is a little bit confusing unless you really understand what's, you know, kind of look at the whole thing, get out of what you know, and step into what they didn't know. So look at verse 13. It says, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death. So Paul is writing because from what he's heard, or if they've asked him maybe through a letter, from what he's heard, they are uninformed about people who have died in their Christian community. So that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. So they seem to not have hope. Christians grieve when we lose loved ones, but we grieve holding on to the hope 
that we have in Christ. These people are not grieving, holding out that hope. So it goes on in verse 14. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. All right, so what is going, going on there? It says, they will not precede those who have fallen asleep. And then it says, for the Lord himself will come. So what he says in verses 16 and 17 relates to what he's been saying right before this. And what you discover is the people in Thessalonica, they actually believe that those who had died, they believe that Christ was returning any time now, and those who had died basically had lost the opportunity to be with Christ forever. They're looking at people dying in their community. Maybe one, two, or three people have died since they have become Christians. And these people are Christians, and they think they're going to miss out on everything that Christ brings and on eternity with Christ and all of that. And you get that as you read the letter. You discover one of the things that's going on in Thessalonica is that some people have actually, believing that Christ is going to return at any time now, have quit their jobs. And now they've become freeloaders on the people who've kept their jobs and a drain on the people who've kept their jobs. And the Apostle Paul basically says to them, in that context, he says, if you don't work, you don't eat. <laughs> so he basically is saying, stop feeding these people. Stop helping these people continue on in the way that they're going. Their theology is, is bad. Their theology is wrong. So as you read verses 13 through 17, this is what you discover. And as you read the rest of the, the passage or the, the letter, this is what you discover. Now, there is an easy answer for what, has, what happens to those people who die before the return of Christ, right? Where, where is the easy answer? It's right here in this letter that they didn't have yet, okay? So you know, we have these advantages of, you know, four gospels, all the letters of the Apostle Paul that deal with these kinds of subjects. These people, on the other hand, have had a, a huge disadvantage. And one of the huge disadvantages was that in the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul comes into their city, he establishes the church, and as oftentimes happens, he gets persecuted, people start persecuting him, and what literally happens there is he gets chased out of town, and they have been Christians, when their founder, their pastor leaves, they've been Christians possibly three to four weeks, and he's gone. So he hasn't had the opportunity that he had in places like Corinth where he spent two or three years really establishing, and they were a mess too. <laughs> so trying to establish them in their faith, he hadn't had the opportunity to do that among them. And so that's why they're so confused. Now, it's important to know what he says here is not a systematic theology of the second coming. Where do you turn for a systematic theology in the Bible of the second coming? Actually, there isn't one. <laughs> there, there isn't, but there's a lot about it. Yes, that is true that there's a lot there. But even that book isn't written as a systematic theology. Okay, um, systematic theology, what I mean is like as a theologian, stepping back and giving a step-by-step, all-well-rounded approach. All those books are written in response to things that are going on in, um, in that time. So Paul writes, verses 16 and 17, very specifically to help the believers in Thessalonica understand that those who die in Christ will not miss out when Christ returns. 
It's a word of encouragement that can mitigate their grief. Not take it away, but mitigate. And that's why it says in the last verse, it says, Therefore, encourage one another with these words. It's a word of encouragement to them. Now, the, the actual mechanics and the actual timing of the Lord's return in Scripture are shrouded in mystery. How, what it's going to look like exactly. I mean, this, these are pretty vague terms. You know, there's going to be this thing in the sky and all this thing is going to be happening. It's pretty vague. It's, it's, it's pretty spectacular, but we, understand how, we don't understand how does that happen all over the world. How does everybody see it? All those kinds of things. The mechanics, the timing, shrouded in mystery, and it's intentional. We're going to see that in a moment. When it comes to the return of Christ, we need to keep the main things as the main things and not get caught up in a lot of speculation. So speaking about his return, Jesus says this in Mark 13. It's kind of mysterious what he says here, but he says, but about the day or hour of his return, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, and this is a hard one, nor the son, but only the father. You can do some research on how that could be. Then here's the main thing. So be on guard. Be alert. You do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their own assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. And so what's happening, and Jesus does this in story after story, parable after parable, he says, this is what he says, do what God has called you to do. They have their assigned task. Do what God has called you to do in this world. Be on guard. Be alert. You don't know when the master is going to return. All right. What else do we need to know about last things? We need to know about the last judgment. So I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 25. So go to the left in your Bibles. Um, if you have a paper Bible, uh, go to the left and turn to Matthew chapter 25. So Jesus spoke of the last judgment quite often. Jesus spoke a lot about the last judgment. Jesus spoke of sortings that's going to take place, a sorting between what's good and what's bad, people who are good in his language or bad, as well as a sorting of what is unacceptable from what is acceptable. One of the sortings that he says is going to take place at the second coming is going to be taking the wheat and the weeds and separating those. Uh, And he uses a parable of or an analogy of a farmer who plants wheat and an enemy comes in at night and plants weeds, and they grow up together, but at the harvest time, they will pull the weeds first, and then they will harvest the wheat. So Matthew 25 is another one of these passages about judgment and about sorting, and in this case, let's see what Jesus says. So Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 31. When the Son of Man, referring to himself, when the Son of Man returns in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Now, in this case, you do not want to be a goat, all right? He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And you don't want to be put on his left So he explains, then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Do you remember 
we talked about this, I think it was week two, that we were created to, to rule. Uh, that's why, you know, doing our, when we go to school and we do our schoolwork, when we go to our jobs and we do our jobs, it's part of what we've been created to do. We've been created to work and to rule. And, and so he says, at the, at the last time, the sheep, he's going to give them their kingdom and uh, the kingdom prepared for them since the creation of the world. Verse 35, here's why. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, now they're, they're confused. When did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you as a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go and visit you? And the king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? His, he will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment for the righteous, and the right, but the righteous to eternal life. Now, one of the things that Jesus brings here in this passage is he begins speaking not, um, he begins speaking in terms of justice and compassion, doing acts of justice and compassion. So God's judgment in this passage is for people who fail, people who fail to do acts of justice and compassion. Now, that's not all he cares about. He cares also about people who do injustice and people who, you know, hurt other people. And he cares about uh, when we don't reflect in our life the kinds of things that, that, that he's made us for. He cares about those kinds of things. But in this passage, in this teaching about judgment, the people who are being judged are being judged on the basis of whether they have done acts of compassion and justice or whether they failed to do acts of compassion and justice. He's not talking in terms of personal morality. He cares about personal morality, but this isn't like, well, the people on my left, what your problem was, you, you had lustful thoughts, uh, you committed adultery, you did this and that. It's, it's not that. Does he care about it? Yes, he taught about that, but it's not what's here. It's not what he's emphasizing here. He's stating everything in terms of alleviating suffering, alleviating suffering. He's talking about hospitality uh, to strangers in need of hospitality. He's talking about visiting people in prison, clothing people who need clothes. This is not a comprehensive list. It's not like, well, if we just look at the five or six things that he says in there and do each one of those and check it off, we're going to be okay. It's not a comprehensive list. It's about a way of life that brings alleviation 
that alleviates suffering in people's, uh, in people's lives. So I was listening uh, just yesterday, and because I was preaching on this, I uh, started putting some things together in my mind. I was listening to uh, a pastor that I really respect, Pastor Tabidi Anyabwele. Uh, wait, Anya. Anyabwele. I have trouble saying his name. He's a pastor in a uh, very urban, very poor, probably the poorest neighborhood in Washington, D.C. He's also been a um, board member for the Gospel Coalition. He's a guy that's been around for a while. And in this, what he calls his last run at life, because he's probably about my age uh, now, um, he's really devoted himself to starting an organization for planting churches in the poorest neighborhoods, and he lives in one of the poorest of neighborhoods, and he uh, pastors a church that he started in the poorest neighborhood in Washington, D.C. And in the interview, he said, well, you know, here are some of the things that, that I see every day. I see people who jump on a bus to go to work, and then when they finish their first job, they jump on another bus to go to another job, and then sometimes they jump on another bus to go to a third job. And they're working two to three jobs just to get to the point where they can make a, a basic, livable income so they can pay the rent, put food on the table. If they, um, they get an injury, they can't go to work, they'll likely lose their job. says, I live in a community and in our church where we've got all kinds of young men who are chronically unemployed, and they keep, until they give up, they keep applying for jobs over and over and over again, but in every single one of those applications, there's a little box that they have to check that says, have you ever committed a felony? And they have to check it. Well, this is, this is the connection I made with this passage. This is the thought that I had. If our response, after reading what Jesus said, after knowing the ministry of Jesus, if our response to those men and women who have to work two or three jobs that are unstable jobs, if our response to them is, well, you should have thought ahead when you dropped out of school at age 15, I don't think that that's the response that Jesus is calling us to have. If our response to those young men who have committed felonies and are uh, not, not even necessarily violent crimes, they've just been caught with enough drugs to put them in prison, and, uh, and so if our response to them is, you should have thought ahead when you started down that drug road, smoking pot from the stash of your parents at age nine, you should have thought ahead. <laughs> if that's our response, I don't think that's what Jesus is calling us to. What is the response? Compassion, justice. I can't tell you what the answer is. Pastor T, in the interview, I don't have an answer. I'm surrounded by this. He's trying to deal with this every single day in his congregation and in his neighborhood. He says, I don't have an answer, but we have to, as Christians, put our heads together and our money together and our efforts together to try to find answers that can actually help people 
in these real situations? Really, the answer for people in that kind of situation is, isn't, hey, get your six-month, uh, you know, save up so that you have, uh, you know, three to six months of savings and then pay off all your debts and then start working on the debt. That's not, that's not an answer that will actually work for those people. But we have to put our heads together. We have to be concerned. We have to do acts of compassion um, and justice in our lives. Now, you see this justice theme come up over and over again in the teaching of Jesus. Let me just give you one more example. It's in Luke chapter 13 where it says, Then you will say, We ate and drank with you, and you taught in our streets. So these are people that Jesus is saying, we're not gonna, we're, We don't have a relationship. But they said, We were there. We were in your congregation. When you came and preached in our town. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, you evildoers. Now, the way to put that is you doers of evil. This is an active type of thing. You are doing evil, which is an injustice against other people. And then he goes on to say in verse 28, there will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. People will come from the east and the west and the north and the south, and it will take you and, and will take you the, will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first, and first who will be last. Now, in a couple of weeks, three weeks, three Sundays from now, we launch a series on the book of Romans. And the first series is on the first four chapters of Romans, and we're calling it uh, The Gospel Journey Back to God. And in the whole book of Romans, uh, or the letter of Paul to the Romans, the Apostle Paul makes a really, really strong case that you cannot be made right with God by your performance, by being a good person, by doing acts of compassion or justice. You cannot be made right with God by doing those things. And yet in chapter 2, and we'll see it probably in about four weeks or so, four or five weeks. This is what the Apostle Paul writes. He says, But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when His righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. The Apostle Paul says, A day is coming, as Jesus said, when there's going to be a sorting out, and there will be just a judgment based on the works, the actual works we have done. That, in the book that says, we cannot perform our way into a right relationship with God. So what are Jesus and the Apostle Paul getting at? What are they getting at? Well, there's a few things. I think they're making a few points. Here's, here's one. They're saying God is a just God, and therefore He's going to judge uh, the, the idea of God just looking the other way is, is to ask God not to be a just God who cares about evil. He cares about evil, so he will judge. Secondly, our actions matter to God, and God lets us live with the consequences of our, of our actions. We'll be seeing that pretty soon here um, in, in Romans chapter 1. Uh, a third thing, both Jesus and Paul basically make the point that on our own, based on our own merit, we're toast, we're done, we're done for. We don't stand a chance before God. And so they drive home over and over again that we need God's grace and we need Christ's 
righteousness. So God's wrath against sin is poured out. He judges. And he pours out his wrath against sin. Where? Our sins. He pours out his wrath on Jesus. Jesus experiences the wrath of God against sin, our sins, that go to Jesus on the cross when we put our faith in him. Now, uh, Jesus said the same thing. He said, I came to die as a ransom for many because we can't work our way to God. Jesus experiences the wrath of God. A lot of times people think the wrath of God against sin is Jesus' suffering on the cross. I mean, it's a terrible way to die, one of the most painful ways anybody can die. That is not the wrath of God. The wrath of God is the cup that he prayed about. Take this cup from me. The cup does not refer to the crucifixion. The cup refers to, all throughout the Old Testament, refers to the cup of God's wrath against sin. So he experiences on the cross the wrath of God against sin, and he does that for us. He does that for us. But don't miss this. Even believers' works will be judged, even though they will escape God's wrath. That's what we're, we're saved from God's wrath. We're not saved from judgment for our works. Uh, when you have some time, you want to, want to go to 1 Corinthians 3 if you've never read that, and you can, talk, you can see one of the places where Paul talks about our works being judged by God. And then especially, don't miss this. Martin Luther said it this way, the, the reformer. Faith is a living, restless thing. It cannot be inoperative. In other words, faith isn't just some, some blob, you know, I believe, and, you know, it makes no difference. No, it has to be operative. We are not saved by works, he said. But if there be no works, there must be something amiss with our faith. A saving faith results in doing the works that God has called us to do, works of compassion. They are works, okay? They're not like... They're not a list of just things you don't do. They are things we do, works of goodness, works of compassion, of sacrifice, of pursuing justice, something positive that comes out of our faith. We're, not, we're saved by grace, not by our works. Now, do you think, and Paul deals with this in Romans as well, do you think for a moment, and I don't think you do, I don't think anybody in here thinks, that we are saved by grace. We escape the wrath of God. Isn't that wonderful? So we don't have to do any of that stuff that Jesus talked about. <laughs> no. We're saved so that we're free to do what Jesus talked about. So that we're empowered to do what Jesus talked about. One last thing that we need to know about. We need to know about the new creation. This earthly paradise that God is going to create. Um, with the new heavens and the new earth described in Revelation, at the end of Revelation. And uh, to, to see that, let's listen to the end of chapter 8 uh, in uh, the Emblems book. All things new. But for those who belong to the death killer, he has taken this wrath and punishment on himself. You don't have to face it because he already faced it for you and made a way for you to spend forever before his glorious and grace-filled face. Not only do you have him, which is and will forever be enough, but he keeps giving you more and more with completed promises upon completed promises. He makes you a part of his people. He gives you a place where you can rest and rejoice. 
He gives you his presence without limit and without end. He does this all with the new heavens and new earth. To see it, just look up. And there, coming down out of heaven, almost within reach of the mountain peak, is a heavenly city. But it is unlike any city you've ever seen. It extends over the whole face of the restored earth. It both reflects and surpasses the image, shape, and dimension of the old city Jerusalem. And when you look closer, the very temple, without restrictions, that used to be that city center. It is a city adorned with gold and precious stones. It has walls without gates, filled with people from every corner of the earth in every year of earth's old calendar. Still, the city has a garden-like beauty to it. That is because a river of life, like those that bordered Eden long ago, now flows from the throne where the king rightfully sits, robed in brilliant light. And then a new and better voice, a regal and powerful one, speaks from the throne, shaking the mountain and the recreated world with these glorious and perfect words. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Revelation 21, three through four. As things calm and settle, the same beautiful yet imposing voice that just shook the new heavens and new earth whispers like he was right next to you this promise. Behold, I am making all things new. Revelation 21, five. You turn, hoping to see the king, but he is not there. Instead, all you see is a faint shadow of someone you vaguely recognize. He stands for a moment and then asks you in that all too familiar and wise voice, the question you've been asking yourself ever since you met him. Do you want him to make you new? My hope is that as a result of this series, if you've never entered a relationship with Jesus based on the way that he has made it possible, based on his death and resurrection, that you will receive that, that you will say, yes, I want to be made new. And that comes by putting our faith in what he did for us, something that we can't do for ourselves. As part of our response, we, we always begin our response to God by celebrating communion together. When Jesus took this bread, he said, this is my body broken for you. This is, this is describing, this is remembering that the wrath of God came down on Christ. Let's eat that together. And he took the cup and he said, this is my blood which is shed for the remission of your sins. 
And then last week we talked about the fact that every time we take communion, we proclaim. We proclaim the Lord's death. We proclaim the gospel. We proclaim the cross. But remember those final words. We proclaim the cross until he comes. Until he comes. We look forward to that day when things will be made right. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending your son to die on our behalf, to take the penalty for our sins. Jesus, we thank you for willingly going to the cross, submitting to the Father. Holy Spirit, we thank you for making our, uh, for giving us the insight we need to see what you've done for us for quickening our hearts so that we can respond. We are so grateful. I pray that we would be a people who live more and more by your priorities and more and more we take your, uh, this gospel into our world, to our friends, to our families, to our schools, to our workplaces, to our neighborhoods, to our cities, to our world. We thank you for the privilege of being able to do that. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.